0: Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 21. We're going to read verses 33 uh, to 46. And I just want to say, over the last number of weeks here at Trinity, um, we have been in this uh, chunk of Matthew's gospel, and it's been really hard. I mean, Jesus is saying some really challenging things, and he has. Over the last number of weeks, we've been holding those things, and that is no different today. And I think coming up next week, um, it's going to be uh, just as challenging. And I think it's really important for us. Um, well, I'll just say this. This is one of, one of the many reasons why I am really thankful to be in the Anglican tradition. Uh, we don't just pick and choose uh, what we want to say to you. Uh, we submit to this big teaching plan called the lectionary that some version of this is about 600 years old. And so the Bible comes to us. Uh, versus us coming to the Bible and picking and choosing from it like we would food at a Denny's buffet or something like that. And what that means is that when really challenging teaching texts come, uh, we, we just allow the word to come to us and then we hold the challenging text together as the family of God. And, and we've been doing that lately. Um, if, if left to your own devices, you might skip a passage like the one we're going to read today. And yet, I believe that there is so much rich wisdom and goodness if we will let Jesus speak to us, and maybe especially if we'll allow him to say things to us that are somewhat challenging. So with that in mind, I'm going to read, and then we'll pray, and then we're just going to to jump right in. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir, come, Let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear you even when hearing you is challenging or even maybe confusing. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear, to be present, to be curious about what it is that you might be saying, Jesus, not just to people 2,000 years ago, but God, what, what might you through this passage be saying to us? We ask you to help us to look at our lives, to be curious about the trajectory of our lives. We pray for your grace and your kindness now, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, as we've been looking in this passage, this part of Matthew's Gospel, there are characters in these stories and there's a pattern here, uh, but I wanna name them. God is the landowner, Um, he's the boss, he's the owner in this story. The vineyard is Israel. And I think you could also say that the vineyard is, is the church uh, for us. The tenants are the religious leaders of the day. They're, they're the, the people that Jesus was telling the story to. They're the ones that realize he was talking about them. Um, they've been given influence and power. I think we could also read this story and hear that we also are the tenants in the vineyard. Uh, it could be you, it could be me, I think it is. The servants in this story, the ones who were sent over and over and over again, they're the prophets. They're the, the, the ones the ones of old, many of them were killed, were stoned by the establishment. Uh, the last prophet to be killed before Jesus tells the story is John the baptizer. He was the one fresh in their mind that the, the powers had turned on him and, and, and killed him. And then in the story, of course, the son is Jesus. He's, uh, he's the father's son who's sent to do something for us and even in his death he does something very powerful for us so those are the players that's the setting of this story i want to start at the end Uh, jesus references two stones in this story and it's my view that we don't really understand the story and what god is trying to teach us what jesus is trying to teach us in this story that jesus tells unless we understand how jesus understands himself And what happens to us sometimes when we're reading our Bibles is that we hear something like the stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We're like, oh, that sounds very Bible-y and and maybe we like it. And then we hear another reference to a stone that um, if you fall on the stone, you'll be broken to pieces, but if the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. And we don't know what it is that Jesus is trying to say. It's, it's my conviction and the conviction of biblical scholars that when Jesus tells us at the end, these two references to stones, he's actually using the Bible to tell you how he understands himself. And it's always really important when you're reading your Bible, whenever Jesus is in a moment of disclosure where he is referencing scripture to tell you something about himself, He's actually trying to give you insight into what he's come to do. Not just for Israel, but also what he's come to do in your life. And so I think we need to look at these two stones and we need to understand what is Jesus saying about himself. So the first one comes from the book of Psalms. Um, this, this passage that Jesus quotes actually verbatim when he says the stone the builders rejected has become the, the capstone. Some translations, maybe one in your Bible says the chief cornerstone and he says, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 118. Um, it, it comes from the moment in the Bible where we're told earlier in that Psalm that unless the Lord builds a house, the house, those who labor, labor in vain. It's a really powerful story about structures being built and what Jesus is saying here is that there is this rock that the builders don't know what to do with. They don't think it fits and so they push it off to the side. They seemingly reject it. And Jesus is looking at religious people who are about to do that very thing to him. They're about to push him off to the side. He's gonna be killed. He's gonna be cast out. He's gonna be put aside, rejected. And Jesus says, but that rock that's rejected will end up as the cornerstone of a building structure that holds the whole thing together. Jesus is saying, though I am going to be rejected, I will ultimately hold it all together. I'll hold the church together but I think he's also saying he'll hold you together. That there's this sense in which the preeminence of a capstone, it's the structural integrity piece. It's the piece that actually makes all the other pieces sturdy, stable, and integrated. Jesus is saying, that's me. So what we have to hear about Jesus in a story like this, and just in general, is that he's saying, though rejected, I am the one, I'm the only one that can bring coherence to the story of the church. And Lord knows we need it. He's also saying I'm the only one that can bring coherence to your story. To our lives. That can hold all things together. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament that God through Jesus gathers up all things into himself. The second stone comes from Daniel chapter 2. It's more obscure because Jesus is just saying like if you, if you fall on it you'll be broken but if it falls on you you'll be crushed and um, in that story, uh, in Daniel 2, a king has a dream and he's, the king is not a, a God-fearing person. He's not, not a good guy, so to speak. And he has a dream and then he says, I want to know what this dream means, but he isn't going to tell anyone even what the dream is. So he wants someone to come and not only interpret the dream, but say like what the dream was. So he's asking for volunteers to read into his thoughts and experiences in the night. And a young guy named Daniel comes and he says, I can tell you what the dream is and I can tell you what it means. And this is the story that Daniel says. He says, you saw a massive statue and the head is made of pure gold and the chest and arms are made of silver and the legs are made of bronze. But the statue was flawed that the king saw. The feet of the statue, the thing closest to the earth was made out of a mixture of iron and clay. They were fragile. And in that dream, a rock falls from heaven and lands on the fragile compromised feet and crushes and topples over the statue and in the dream the rock then grows to become a massive mountain that fills the whole earth so when jesus references the rock in daniel 2 what he's saying is is all this corruption things are not getting better they're going from pure to inferior and that should ring a bell for us. We live in an age where things are not improving day by day by day. We've got war in Israel between Israel and Palestine. If you're signed up to go on this trip with us to Israel, you just need to know we're, we're watching it. We're, we're monitoring it with people who know a whole lot more than us to see whether it's even appropriate or safe for us to go. All it takes is to wake up in the morning and look at the world and realize things are not getting better. So Jesus, when he tells this story, is telling a story about what he has come to do. And in part, it's this, that his solidity will bump up against the relative fragility and mixture of our human systems. And that something's got to give. And it'll be us. It'll be us individually, it'll be us collectively, it'll be the church, it'll be Israel 2,000 years ago, that when God comes to topple the corruption of human systems, God wins in those spaces. So Jesus is telling us two really um, like, kind of like muscular things. These are thick things. He's, he's not just saying I'm here to be gentle and meek and mild, he's actually saying I'm the only one that can bring coherence to this story on one hand And he's saying, number two, the mixture and the compromise and the brokenness in the church, in Israel, in our own lives, he's come to topple things over so that there can be a new, sturdy reality that emerges, a rock that fills the whole earth. When Jesus tells us these stories about rocks, he's saying something about himself. He's saying something about himself as it relates to all of us, to the church, to our lives and it's provocative. So with that in mind I want you to hear the story Jesus tells. Number two the next movement the first the first part of the story is that a, an owner God makes an orthodox choice. He makes a an unusual choice. Like in the ancient world, it was almost unspeakable for an owner to give tenants the power over his farm. He would do that with his servants. He would do that with people who were under oath and bound to him. And in this story, he's giving away power for how the farm was run, the the growing of fruit and the collection of proceeds to tenants, to workers. And that was a weird choice. Anyone listening to this story that Jesus tells would think, what a that was kind of a bad business decision. And you just need to know that God is telling us something about the power that He's given us. The power that He gave the religious leaders of the day in Israel, leaders in the church, but also you. That we've been given this power of influence that can be used for good or for ill. And in the case of Jesus and His own life and his contemporaries this power of God the dignity of causation that God gave to the leaders of the of the Jewish family in Israel the scribes and the religious leaders who are listening to him but also church leaders but also you is a remarkable risk and frankly it's unorthodox it's kind of risky because we have the power to mess it up we have the power to go in a direction that isn't the right direction, but I just want to say to you, none of us are walking around with no dignity, with our hands tied behind our backs. We may feel that way, and yet we've all, like the leadership of Jesus' day, we've all been given this remarkable dignity to make an impact, for better or for worse. And Jesus is telling us a story about God's generosity in giving people a meaningful part to fit within this big story that he's telling the third thing we see here is that these tenants behave wickedly they don't make the most of it they are responsible to bear fruit and then to render the proceeds to the owner the fruits not theirs their time is not theirs They're meant to work under authority and then give to the owner that which belongs to the owner. It's very clear in the story Jesus is telling that the farm doesn't actually belong to them. But over time, they become confused about that. In this story, they begin to believe because of the owner's absence that the farm's actually theirs that they can do what they want. And we actually don't know what they do. We don't know whether they just sort of mail it in and don't produce fruit or they produce lots of fruit and they just want to keep it for themselves. We actually aren't told specifically what happens. What we are told is that somewhere along the way, they began to believe that their lives are their own. They can do what they want with their time, with their energy, that they can live their lives just however they want. And it's, it makes sense on some level because they don't see the owner around all that much. And a lot of us, this is the way we live our lives. It's like we're looking around going like, well, I don't really feel God all that much. So maybe I'm on my own. Maybe I can do what I want. The fourth thing we see is that the owner is paying attention. He is involved and he sends His servants, the ones who are under his authority, to collect what belongs to him. And there's a phrase in this passage that struck me. It's, um, as harvest time approached, the owner sent servants, the servants are the prophets. They're the ones who would come and speak truth. He sent servants, the prophets. To collect that which was his own. So there's this real sense in which the owner is actually watching for when fruitfulness was meant to be happening. And then he sends his servants to say, please give me that which is mine. And it occurs to me that there are seasons of reckoning that happen in all of our lives. There are times where we just bump along and then it feels as if like cards are called. And I've been thinking even in the the macro church and the big church, because on a big level, this is a story about the big C church. And when you think about all the scandals in the Roman church and the Baptist church around sexual behavior of leaders and ministers, there's a real sense in which a season of reckoning is happening. Like a calling to accounts where things have not been as they should be. And when I think about us writ large as the church, like we're not holding up our end of the bargain in so many ways. In so many ways, I think if we read a story like this, we are in the space that these people are in. It's like, what have we done in terms of faithful stewardship with what God has given us? That's true in the macro. There are seasons of accountability and we almost feel these seasons in our bones when they come. It's like wave after wave after wave. There are also seasons of accountability and reckoning that happen in our own individual lives and in our own spheres of influence in the more micro. And rather than be distracted about ultimate judgment here, I want you before we get there to see what the owner does. Knowing that fruitfulness is meant to be occurring, he sends his servants. And the language in this is, is, is striking. It's like over and over and over and over again. The fifth thing we see is the master continues to pursue the tenants. They kill one, they hurt one, they stone one. And then he does it again and again and again and again. And then finally he sends his son. But there's this desire on the heart of the master to look at our lives and say, "Um, where is that fruit that you are called to bear? And I just wanna say, y'all, like apple trees don't wake up every morning and say apples, apples, apples. It's what happens when they're alive, when they're connected to the source. Apples bear, apple trees bear apples. It's what they do. You and me are meant to render to God's that which is God's. We're meant to live our lives, not just for our own sakes, but outside of ourselves to give to the Lord that which belongs to him. This is the natural flow of life in the vine. And God is calling all of us to be people who are open to and expectant around fruit bearing. And there's another story that Jesus tells around a tree that should be bearing fruit but isn't bearing fruit. And what are we told there? That the owner says, let's dig around it. Let's put manure, let's enrich the soil. Let's give it time. The heart of God, and I would say the attitude of the owner in this story is one of persistence and pursuit with the expectation that we would bear fruit, that the church would bear fruit, when Jesus told the story that Israel would bear fruit, there's this expectation. But these tenants, they abuse and they kill and they turn into places of self-preservation. They begin to close down and circle the wagons. And I'm not sure exactly what they thought was going to happen. I actually think when they killed the son, they thought, well, if, if nothing happens after this, then the, the place is ours. We're in charge. We're the owners. And they begin to believe that the farm is theirs. And I think one of the most dangerous things that we can believe is that the farm is ours. Like one of the, the trickiest, most seductive things that can come into your life and mine is that we begin to believe that our lives are truly, fully, and completely our own. That we just, we can do whatever we want. And the longer that I live, the more I'm convinced that we, we owe something to God. And that language gets so tricky for us because we just think, wait, What? You are made to render unto God that which is his own. That's the outcome of our lives. That's the outcome individually and collectively that God asks of us, that he requires of us. He wants us to live for someone more than us. And the master pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And they're given time just by the nature of his Pursuit. There's time. But I just want to say there is a limit to the time. We don't, any of us, have unlimited time. We're finite creatures. And there are seasons of reckoning that come into all of our lives, individually and collectively. Times where fruit is expected and we must answer for it. Now, we're not told this in this story, but my... Gut tells me that if there had been repentance, that lack of fruit, there would have been more investment and more time. That's what we're told actually in other stories that Jesus tells. But in this instance, they began to seize control. They're power hungry. They were not leading the religious at the time of Jesus, people into trust and relationship with God. And so he asked them a pointed question and then they realize that he's actually speaking about them to them and they look for a way to get rid of him. They hasten the end of the story. Here's the last thing. Rocks break things. Here's something that a, a Jewish teacher once said. If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. If a rock falls on a pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. You and me and our institutions will all be broken. They are inherently broken because they're made up of people like us. If you find the perfect institution, don't join it. You will simply ruin it because we're broken. And one of the things that I think Jesus is trying to get us to see is that it appears as if we will not make it out of this life without experiencing that pain of brokenness. That every one of us, as we walk through life, come into seasons where there is a moment of reckoning and something must give. And it will never be God who gives. He will never relent. You and me, we are made of finite and fragile stuff. And there are seasons where we bump up against what is God and we experience pain and brokenness. That is a non-negotiable for us. It's what we do with it that makes all the difference. Jesus in the telling of this story is saying, I have come to topple your plans and your systems when they are corrupt and they are mixed. That's a fact. In our personal lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in the church, in the big C church, he has come to say when sturdy meets not sturdy, not sturdy never wins. So in part, what Jesus is trying to get his friends to believe, including us, is that we're not so sturdy as we think we are, that we're made of mixed stuff, that the further down you get, the more mixed it is. And so when you find that like creaking feeling and life coming in, you've got a choice. You either fall on a rock and experience brokenness or pretend like you own the farm and get crushed. And I believe that we all have these invitations as we live our lives. I think that the Big C Church has an invitation. Y'all, we're making it hard for our kids to love Jesus because of the way the Big C Church behaves. We hoard our power, we try to self-protect and all the things that happen and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. But what about you? It's so easy to blame some big thing far away, but as is true in all the stories of Jesus, they start out here and then they funnel down to here. And at the end of the day, we're looking in a mirror and we're saying, where is God wanting to topple some system in me? If it's always just her and it's not you, you're missing something. Jesus is made of sturdier stuff than you and me, than we are, than our best systems, our best institutions. He is made of sturdier stuff. And there come these moments in life where we have cards called, where there is a harvest time coming and we have to answer for what is happening. And For many of us, the answer might be, Lord, I need some more time but I do not want to be hostile to your authority give me cut dig around the root of the tree and put some soil and put some manure in Jesus works with that but when we act as if we own it that doesn't work for anybody it never has it never will so here's the question I want us to hold let's put it up there if we can What kind of fruit is God looking for in your life right now? And here's a more pointed way of asking that. Do you have a sense that a season of reckoning is coming? And one of the ways that I think we can pay attention to whether that's true is to pay attention to pain points in life. Where do I feel some pinch points that cause me to want to develop a bit of a siege mentality? Where am I most defensive? Might be a better way to ask the question. Jesus loves us too much to leave us to tending our own kingdoms. He just loves you too much to let you do that. So I want us to hold this question, I want us to be still if we can for a few moments and I've been journaling a lot about this in my own, in my own private journal space and so I would encourage you to maybe think about doing the same but let's start just right now to pay attention to where there might be a moment of reckoning coming for you before God and then we'll come to communion but first let's just be still just for a few moments I just have this sense that for some of you who are married in this room, there is a sense of reckoning coming in that marriage. Some things feeling like they're coming due. And I just want you to hear that if that's you and you feel that, that there is in the pain an invitation to submit and surrender, not to the will of another person, but to God. not talking about people who are in unsafe and abusive spaces. I just know that in a room this large, some of us are feeling the pain and there's an invitation in the pain. Discern what the invitation is. And if you don't know, ask somebody that cares about you. Wherever we are in this room, whatever it is that's happening, wherever those pain points are, where our agenda and God's agenda are now, coming into some form of conflict, I pray that you would trust him enough to let the hurt tell you something. God have mercy on us. If you're able to stand together.